Hello everyone, welcome to the Sinister Piffle Podcast. I am your host, Brett Hewitt. This is episode number seven, both of the podcast and the epistemology series. The series where we do a deep dive into uh, various philosophical topics including morality and aesthetics and God, but we acknowledge that the the through line, as I'm calling it, is epistemology through all of these things. That's the glue that holds them together. In my submission, and this uh, episode we will go into a lot of ideas about dogmas and the delineation that Deutsch makes between a dogma and a tradition, a very important distinction. And I'll go off in every which way on my own thoughts on the matter. And so I hope you enjoy. This is a fallible tradition. clarify the role that knowledge has to play in morality as as an well as what I would call an extended Popperian and Deutschian enterprise going off of their ideas it is critical that we realize the really heavy import that's carried by the notion of fallibilism. I've already touched on fallibilism when talking about knowledge up to the this point uh, in this series, but it's definitely worth some time to make concrete further in your mind. According to Popper and some subsequent philosophers, including Deutsch, fallibilism is the idea that all knowledge is arrived at only by conjecture, and it's further refined by making another conjecture and removing the parts of said conjecture that turn out to be incorrect, the parts that have been falsified and then new conjectures are taken aboard, and this process repeats indefinitely. In other words, nothing is to be set in stone, and nothing is immune to criticism. As Popper denoted, all knowledge is theory-laden, 
even something as simple as directly perceiving things are as such. What color do you see, for instance, when you close your eyes in a dark room? Is it pitch black? Do you think that the inside of your eyelids is this color? If not, why do you see pitch black and not the color of your eyelids? Or if it's not pitch black and you see interesting little glowy images as you often see when you close your eyes, there's something lit up there, as I believe Sam Harris put it. Do you think that's the real color? What if you're staring directly at the sun and you close your eyes? Do you see the true color of your eyelids then? How about a room optimally lit? What is optimally lit, by the way? And how do we tell then what color is inside uh, of the eyelids. How can we tell what it truly is? Conjecture, criticism, explanation. Knowledge is not ultimately derived from the senses, but it may be corrected by it through the use of good explanations. We don't know directly from experience what the true color of the inside of our eyelids is, but we do know this, however, from our good explanations. These explanations, which have been refined and changed and culled over and over again, tell us how the human eye does not pick up certain wavelengths of light when in dimly lit scenarios. They tell us that through other theories, we have constructed machines that can detect light with extraordinary precision and reliability, determining that, uh, well, according to objective wavelengths of light reflected from it, the inside of the human eye is generically, for most people, what we would call a pinkish color. But there's an objective wavelength assigned to that, or set of wavelengths. And further theory is necessary for this, too, as not every human has full color vision. But you get my point. None of this was discovered by direct observation alone, but through the careful parsing of existing and new conjectures. A constant stream of updates. Now I'd like to take a moment to make an important delineation between what we'll call a tradition and what we'll call a dogma. I espouse fallibilism, and as such, a tradition of criticism 
as the main mechanism by which we go about creating new knowledge. At first glance, this attitude or blueprint for knowledge creation, if you will, brings with it some potential problems for itself, uh, and they'll need to be addressed head-on. That's what this episode is primarily for, and that's what I'll be doing for the remainder, mostly. A dogma and a tradition may both be seen as some kind of foundation, it's true, but I'd like like to, I suppose, chip away at that view, if you'll entertain it. There is an age-old proverb that one cannot start building a bridge in the middle of the river. It must be built from both sides. But we can add to this, and in fact, have no choice but to do this when it concerns epistemology. You could say, perhaps, that a tradition is foundational in the sense that it has many implications for other things. But any statement, foundational or otherwise, has such implications. What's more, there can't be an ultimate explanation, because this explanation would require an explanation for why it is the ultimate one and not some other one. And it doesn't seem to matter if the explanation were actually the ultimate one anyway, because this explanation logically cannot contain a reason for why it is the ultimate and not some other one. We are always building from the middle of the river. No matter how solid we think our foundation is, it's always building from the middle of the river. It's only an illusion that we are not struggling against the rapids. So, the main difference between a dogma and a tradition can be boiled down to whether or not we sort of baby the root idea. It's best to remember here that this is epistemology. What we can know that we're dealing with, not ontology, which is what truly is. The very reason that we're always building from the middle is because we don't have any unadulterated access to reality via our senses. This whole concept shares some similarities uh, to the 20th century philosopher uh, Willard Van Orman Quine. Quine was famous for many things, uh, many deflationary things. He took the wind out of the sails of a, a lot of ideas, whether correctly or not. I will abstain from commenting at the moment. Um, but this is similar to Quine's concept of a web of belief, where Quine imagined a sort of web of entangled 
belief statements, say, that each of us has, like an intricate circular rug. And each individual thread that uh, is in the rug is representing a belief in this metaphor. The rug here is sort of ever-changing as beliefs are revised and um, to fit reality. And the number of threads that are connected to any given thread determines basically the threshold for revision. And therefore, the threads in the innermost part of the web, which have more connections, are much more difficult to change than those on the outside. For instance, Quine put math and logic in the center of the web uh, for basically everybody, and because one would have to untangle nearly everything in order to change those fundamental things, those are beliefs in this case. On the other hand, he would put something like the belief that it is raining outside right now on the far outer reaches of the web because nothing rides on this belief being revised. It doesn't change any fundamental thing. I, uh, I like this metaphor in this context, or in the context of fallibilism. Uh, there, you can quibble, quibble with it here and there, but uh, I like it because it doesn't let math and the other solid truths off the hook. We're still fallible, and that could be wrong too, but it does illustrate how building a bridge from the middle of a river need not be as shaky as it might first seem. One of the absolutely, or absolute prime examples of what I would call a dogma is one most people will be familiar with. The case of religious precepts. The idea that there is some ultimate foundation to knowledge and everything else, and that it's provided by God, is a dogma. It's a dogma because there is no questioning it. And when it is questioned, it ceases to purport what it purports for. It's a bad explanation. Similarly, relativism is another bad explanation that often manifests as a dogma among the non-religious. It is worth adding that the only manner in which a bad explanation can survive is through obfuscation, deception, or coercion, willfully implemented or otherwise. A tradition, on the other hand, can be openly questioned without serious reprimand, and yet provides a source point from which people can create more knowledge. More specifically, it is a quality of a good explanation that it can naturally lead to compounding levels of even more good explanations. This is due to the fact that, seemingly paradoxically enough, every single good explanation creates 
multiple more problems to solve. Multiple more, many more things to be explained. They are more refined problems, potentially, not necessarily. Though the grain may be less coarse, but these problems still must be explained. Critics of fallibilism will say that when taken to its logical conclusion, it would seem to be self-defeating. As how can something which seems like a dogma itself disavow all dogmas? When treating it like a dogma, one is tempted to think that fallibilism renders itself uh, sort of impotent. But, again, here I think this is a mistake of intuition. Uh, fallibilism is not a dogma under my sense, it's a tradition. In fact, fallibilism is, in some ways, the complete antithesis of dogma, as sort of the very second that you begin to treat fallibilism like a dogma, it ceases to be fallibilism. Both traditions and dogmas may be foundations in their own ways, or for lack of better words, but a tradition isn't a foundation in the sense that it is unassailable. A dogma is. This is the distinction that uh, Deutsch makes between the two as well. And it follows that a tradition defined this way can still fit within the rubric of fallibilism. In fact, it's precisely what fallibilism entails. There is a sense in which our prevailing theories and explanations about anything are not closed criticism. And the distinction between a tradition and a dogma is that. That is the distinction between a tradition and a dogma. The idea of fallibilism itself has many criticisms that it faces to this day as any other explanation of what's going on out there. So, to convince us of the vulnerability of anything and everything to change, let's take something that most people, however highly educated or not, often think is quite set in stone and permanent potentially forever, so long as forever means anything, that would be logic and math. These must surely be dogmas, right? There's no way to assail these with buffoonish critiques from those who think that we can't do better than pure logic and math. We can't question them. You can't question that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Perhaps you'll say they're entirely fundamental to higher-order thinking. But uh, let's hold on right there for a moment. Already, there are disparate forms of logic. The layman only thinks of what we may call classical logic or and... Uh, 
sentential logic uh, a little bit, but a variety of different logics exist with different axiomatic structures and features. And as for math, thanks to the stunning work of Kurt Gödel, the reclusive 20th century mathematician, we now know the very limits of mathematical proof, and thus an apparent, the apparent nature of math itself. Gödel's infamous, infamous incompleteness theorems demonstrate these intrinsic boundaries in math by perhaps a tad ironically proving that no axiomatic arithmetic system can both provide proof for every mathematical statement possible within the system and also be fully consistent with itself simultaneously. Now, I am not a mathematician, so I defer to those who know vast amounts more on the subject than I do. Thus, this is a very quick and dirty, incredibly simplified version of Gödel's work, but it's a decent enough summary, and the results for our purposes here lead to the same conclusion. Even something as fundamental as our notions of math and logic are merely traditions or prevailing explanations but in my estimation merely is to denigrating a word for the import that this class of things holds uh, a good explanation or good explanations and their resulting traditions are all we have to beat back the rapids. They are the ropes that bind every last marginally functional raft of civilization together. And this isn't just about the grandiose things, such as whole civilizations, but quite literally any enterprise undertaken by people as a whole. Take extra care here to uh, to remember the special definition of people that I briefly went over at the end of the episode, Knowledge and Abstraction. To this, we can say that I was wrong at the beginning of this chapter, or this episode. We really can, and we should, set plenty of things in stone. But we must do so with the realization that even stone is not forever. As always, thank you for listening. Please come join the conversation. I would love to hear from you. I'm working on getting some uh, a website up and uh, perhaps a forum on Reddit or, or a subreddit or a Discord. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Hewitt Brett. And I hope you're well.